in the 80s, Trish and I were part of a, um, a team in the UK called Heartbeat. We used to travel all over the country, doing schools work, colleges, prisons. And Bristol Christian Fellowship asked if we could help out the youth work here in at Seven Beach. So I went along every Friday. I went to their Christian school during the day. Then at 4 o'clock, I would come back to, to Mike's parents' home. They would feed me, play cards with me. He's a terrible cheat at cards, okay? Just to, let, just to let you know. I knew, I knew. And they would feed me, and then the youth would come along in the evening. We'd have a, an evening meeting, and uh, every Friday night I did that. And uh, it, was a, it was a great best day of the week I had. And, uh, yeah, we went to, to Berlin. The youth went to Berlin, and Mike came along. I think he was 11 at the time, and Mike's parents... Uh, were there as well, Tony and Val. And we, we, we spoke at this Baptist church, and I was the speaker, so I spoke, and I said, we're just going to open up the floor for any words from God. And Mike comes up to me. David, I think I've got a word for that lady at the back. Okay, Mike, what is it? Well, I think she's deaf, and God wants to heal her. Now, this was a conservative Baptist church in Berlin, Okay. <laughs> But we say, come on then, Mike. So he gives the word out, and the translator gives it out in German. And then for the next two minutes, there's this conversation going on between this woman and the translator in German. Well, she can hear him, so she's not deaf. What's going on? And the translator eventually said, no, she's not deaf, but after this meeting, she's going to a hospital to, to visit her deaf friend who's profoundly deaf in hospital. And my, I said, Mike, go over to her and pray for her, that she will pray for this lady and that this lady will be healed. Now, we left the next day, and we've no idea what happened. And there's some of the mysteries of God that you don't know what the result will be. But God asks you to do something, you do it. And Mike was reminding me of a story where, again, in another church meeting, he had a word for somebody who had, suddenly had a kidney problem, wasn't it? Kidney failure. And nobody responded. I said, come on, you're right, Mike. I know this is right. Give it out again. Is it a boy or a girl? He said, I think it's a girl. Nobody responded. So I said, come on, we need to move on. Then nobody responded. It reminded me of a story of um, John Wimber. We went to, to his church in Anaheim in California, and he gave a word out about somebody who wanted to be healed. Nobody responded. He even gave the name of the street this girl lived in, and nobody responded. And he said, no, well, let's move on. At the end of the meeting, somebody came up to Mike and said, I have a friend who once needs a new kidney. And that person was healed. God asks you sometimes to do things, and you don't know what the fruit's going to be. But you do it anyway. And you trust him for the result. Now, look at that in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about um, what we're up to now. We, Trish and I, we went to South Africa for four years, pastored a church. Then we were called to Belfast to pastor a church there that was in uh, a bit of a mess. So we went in, we transitioned the church back into a good place. By 2012, we knew our time was coming to an end. We'd done what we'd set out to do. And Trish started praying for Greece. It's always dangerous when you start praying for something because God starts to do something in you. And as we prayed, we felt God was saying, get involved. Now, Greece had just um, collapsed as a 
financially, it was bankrupt as a nation, they were going through horrible austerity. We had friends there, so we rang up and said, what's, what's going on? And they said, it's so bad here. People are losing their jobs, the, the, the nation has crashed. Why don't you come and help? And we thought, yeah, yeah, we'll pray for you. By the way, that's probably the biggest lie in the church today, the phrase, I'll pray for you. Somebody gives you some news, you say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. And somehow mysteriously we think, by saying those words, we've done it. We've actually prayed. Just by saying, I'll pray for you. And people never do. And Trish and I recognize that in ourselves. So now when everybody says to us, I'll pray, can you pray for me? We'll stop whatever we're doing and we'll pray then and there. We'll say, right, we'll pray right now because we'll probably forget in two days. So don't make empty promises. If you say you'll do something, just do it right then and there. So anyway, Trish went out to Greece to visit to see this, what it was like with her mum, came back, and it was dreadful. And at the end of 2012, we, we knew it was right to leave City Church in Belfast and felt it could be Greece, but we didn't rush. We went back to our home church, which was Frontline Church in Liverpool, and said, this is what we're thinking. They said, well, don't you've just been five years in a church, take a break. And we spent nine months just, just resting in Liverpool and, and seeking God, but we knew we were to go out to Greece. We got there in September 2013, just Trish and me and our one friend who was a lawyer. She'd been in Athens after the crash. There was no work. She went back to her hometown of Halkitha, which is about an hour away from Athens and had to live above her parents, which is quite a traditional thing to do in Greece. And that's all we knew. We went to Halkida to visit her in June 2013. And as we were there, we were talking about what we might do and said, well, we've got no support, no church is sending us. We just feel God's telling us to come. I said, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a language school in, in Halkida. There's quite a few. Well, let me ring one. So our friend rang this school and said, oh, I've got a friend who's a... He's a teacher originally. I'm a, I'm a PE teacher, believe it or not, despite the hand. I used to be a PE teacher first and foremost, and, um, but I taught English. So we rang up the school said, come and have an interview. And I was sitting on the beach in T-shirt and shorts. said, come now. So I literally went to the school in T-shirt and shorts and had an interview to be an English teacher, teaching uh, English as a foreign language. And then the third minute, yeah, you've got the job. Can you start in September? Now, Trish and I could have said, yeah, well, we could do that, but is it right, and, and do we know? But God had opened a door. My God opens a door, just go through it. Just take a risk and see what happens. So Trish and I ended up in, in Halkida, September 2013, and our church was me and Trish, Peppy, our friend, and her dog. There was the four of us. We counted dogs in those days because we needed the numbers. <laughs> and for six months... We prayed over the city, we walked the city, and guess what? Nothing happened. We thought, right, there's a, there's a paralia, a waterfront, lots of coffee shops. We'll sit outside, we'll open our Bibles, and they'll, they'll find us. People will come to us. Did they heck? Not one person. But we prayed, we walked up and down, and we discovered the culture of Greece. And in Greece, you're orthodox, or you're dead. They, they actually teach, if you're not from the orthodox tradition, you will not go to heaven. 
That's their teaching. And anything other than Orthodox is a cult. So realized she was just telling, trying to tell people about church, and they were thinking, you're a cult. And so we realized we had to, to do something different. We had to build relationships. And the key to the last six years of us in Greece was building relationships with people, meeting families, talking to them, letting them discover we're, we're fairly normal, learning their cultures, what they do, how they live. And after six years, we're almost beginning to understand the Greek culture. It takes time. But we've got a group now, there's about 50 or 60, if they're all to turn up on the same day, which they never do. The Greeks don't do calendars. They don't do dates. You could say to them, right, next week we're going to do this. And they'll go, hmm, maybe. Who knows? It's a week away. Who knows what's going to happen in a week's time? You cannot plan. You just got to live day by day. But we've, we've persevered. We've, we've grown. And this is it. But the moment we arrived in Greece, the refugees arrived in Greece as well. The crisis in Syria, the civil war happened. And it landed on our doorstep. So what do you do when people ask you for help? You say, no, 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 I'm too busy building church, sorry, I'm church planting, that's, that's refugee work. No, you say, yeah, if I can help, I will. I'd like to say that we like to be a group that says yes. If I can do something to help, I will. And you're not doing any other purpose than to help. I think the biggest trouble with the church today is that we have stepped outside of society. We've become alienated, we've become irrelevant. And I'm gonna look at a scripture in a few, I will get to a scripture, okay, in a few minutes. Um, so we get stuck in and we start to help. And we said, it's not our main focus, our main focus is church planning, but there's a need, we'll help. And so the last five years, we've been helping out with the, the, Greek, the refugees in Greece I'd never met a Syrian before. I'd never met an Afghan before. But I discovered they were the most wonderful people I'd ever met as a nation. They were just incredible people. But war drew in their lives. And we just helped whatever we could. We got so involved, we've started a charity here in the UK, LP, the Hope UK. And uh, it's to, to help promote and, and pay for the work in Greece. Because Greece has got no money. And what happens is, um, let's turn the next, on the next page. Here's the latest things in the last year. 60,000 refugees arriving in Greece every year at present. New refugees. There's 1,500 a week arriving on the islands every week. The government, they're trying to stop it because Greece can't cope with the numbers. Greece is bankrupt and... Um, the United Nations pays for all, all the refugee work that goes on, all the workers. And basically, once you're registered as a, a refugee, the, the UNHCR gives you a small amount of money, 150 euros a month, to survive on. And they'll give you somewhere to live. They live in porter cabins if they're lucky. Um, but if you're not registered, you don't get a thing. And there are hundreds of, of refugees arrive. They're not registered. They get absolutely nothing. And they, they arrive there saying, have you got any food? So your gift over Christmas to us, which we were so grateful for, will feed some of those families. 
there's a lovely Christian family. Well, they became Christians with us, but they're not registered. So we are providing them with food hampers every month to help them keep them going. And the gift you gave before Christmas, guys, thank you so much for the offering. It was brilliant and the regular support. Um, it, it funds what we do. Um, so you arrive in Greece, you get registered, then you've got to wait to have an interview for asylum. You're not in asylum, you're not registered for asylum yet until you get your interview. And you could be waiting over two years for that interview. We're talking to some refugees and their interview dates begin as February 2023. That's how long they have to wait for their interview. And until then, they've got to sit in their porter cabin, doing nothing, waiting. And when you think of refugees, you tend to think of, I don't know, I always thought of them as, you know, as tribal people in Africa with nothing. These are doctors, lawyers, teachers, youth workers, musicians who fled war. And they're saying, can you help us? How can you say no when that happens? So we said yes. So we get involved, um, I started teaching English. Um, to refugees. And I'm going to tell you two stories in a few minutes. Um, some of the most blessed times I've had as a Christian. But let's get into the Word of God first. So come on the next slide up. My talk this morning is Go Through the Door. And it's going to be taken from Acts chapter 10. Now, I don't know if you know what this is. It's, it's called a Bible. It's a book. Do any of you have that anymore? Well, if you go... Helen, thank you. Brilliant. If not, get your phones out to your Bible app and act chapter 10. Acts is a, a brilliant book to, to read in the new year, by the way. It's, uh, you read the book of Acts and it, it, you can't be the same. And we act chapter 10 and read quite a few of the verses. So listen to this story. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa, summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was, God, was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and said, yes, I'll do it. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. So there's this Roman soldier, not a Jew, God-fearing, fed the poor, prayed, but not a Christian, but God-fearing. Now just look at Simon Peter a minute. Let's read on. Next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up to the flat roof to pray. It's about noon, he was hungry, but while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet 
was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. And Peter said, No. Peter then had an argument with God about this vision. He said, I can't eat pork. I'm a Jew. I've been brought up a Jew. We're not allowed. Your law says we're not allowed to eat pork. I can't do that. I can't go there. That's, I'm not allowed. My religion says I can't do that. And God says, don't you dare call unclean what I've made clean. And Peter must have argued so much, he had that vision three times. Three times the same vision before he suddenly got it. God said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Now, this is all in preparation for the visit of Cornelius' servants. He was saying, you can now break 3,000 years of tradition. 3,000 years of laws and rules which says you cannot eat pork. God is saying to you, you can eat. 3,000 years of Jewish law and custom was about to be broken by Peter. He was about to say, oh, I'm allowed to do that. And I think over the years, the church has brought in so many rules and traditions. And God is saying, we need to re... Just to revisit some of these and see why is it that we're not doing things. Trish and I, whenever we get the opportunity, if God says to us to do something, we'll do it. So... A new refugee camp opened. We've got two refugee camps near us, Ritzona, which is the main one. And then another one opened. They, they, basically, the government took over an old hotel and dumped 200 Afghan refugees in it. And they rang us up and said, I, I hear that you, you teach English to refugees. Would, would you come and teach in this camp? We said, I can do that, yes. So we went to the camp, we, the, we, they came to us actually, a busload of them came, 12 ref, Afghan refugees, and I started to teach them English. They were at different levels, they were, they were all from Muslim backgrounds, none of them were Christians. And after two weeks, one of the boys was missing, a guy called Ali Sina. I said, hey, Ali's missing, where is he today? Oh, he's in hospital. I said, hospital, what's wrong with him? I said, oh, nothing, his, his wife is having a baby. He said, his wife, he's married? I said, yeah, they're in hospital in Halkida. So then the lesson, Trish and I said, come on, let's go and visit him. We went up and we found the ward where they were, the, the maternity wing. And yep, sure enough, there was Alicina with his wife, Shakila, and no baby. I said, where's the baby? He said, oh, the baby's been taken off us. They've, they've, there's something wrong with the baby. They've taken the baby to Athens, which is an hour's drive away. I said, They've taken your baby to Athens, and you're still here in Halkida? I said, yes. And in a couple of days, they're going to send us back to the camp. I said, what's wrong with the babies? We don't know. They're not telling us. They don't know. Now, 
this is a red rag to the bull for Trish. Trish is an ex-nurse, and when she finds something like that, her, her temper rises slightly. So she storms out, finds the, the midwives, and says, what's happening? She said, we don't know. There's something wrong with the baby. We've sent the baby to Athens. And nothing. So then she's ringing the social worker for the refugee camp, saying, we've got a parent here, and where's her baby? Oh, we'll find out for you. So we said to them, we're going to find out. We're going to find out where your baby is. We're going to sort this out for you. The next day, they, they discharged Shaquila, and Alicina was there. And, it, and in Greek hospitals, they don't feed you unless you pay the money under the table. So we picked them up next morning. They were starving, hungry, still didn't know anything about their baby. And she said, come on, back to our apartment. So we took them back. We fed them. We gave them showers. Um, and we made phone calls. And we discovered the baby had been taken to a children's hospital in Athens. And the midwife said, well, if you go there and the baby's okay, they will, they will allow the mother to take the baby home. So we said, come on then, we're taking you to your baby. So we pushed them in the car and off we drove to Athens, an hour's drive. As we were leaving Helki, the, the social worker rang up and said, oh, there'll be a slight problem in that the, they'll only release the baby if the mother can breastfeed the baby successfully. Okay, so we stop at a chemist, buy a breast pump, and get back in the car. So we're driving along, and in the back of the car, there's Trish teaching Shaquila how to use the breast pump. <laughs> and there's me turning the mirror of the car away, and just my eyes fixed straight ahead driving. Said, this has never happened to me before. <laughs> and we get to Athens. We find the hospital. Not allowed in, so we ring the bell. The nurse comes out. We explain the situation. Said, oh, yes, the baby's here. Um, said, well, here's the mother. She says, oh, well, wait a few minutes. And a few minutes later, they came out and said, OK, the mother can come in. And Trish was allowed in. And let's get the next picture up. Shaquille with a baby. The doctor came out and says, listen, um, this baby arrived two days ago. No notes. We didn't know anything about this baby. What was wrong with her? Nothing. So we've just done tests and, and things, and she's fine. I said, as long as the mother can breastfeed, and can she breastfeed, says Trish. Yes, she can. <laughs> and they were allowed home. This couple, we, we feel like we're the baby's godparents. Um, believe Shaquille's got a faith, but because of their the company and whatever, it's, it's like a secret faith, her and her husband. But I think they're secret believers now. And it's all because we said yes. And I'm, I'm going to tell you the second probably most blessed time I've ever had as a Christian. Let's go on to the next slide. Okay, let's, let's do this first. Any of you heard of the Colotecca Bridge? I'm going to tell you this story of the Colotecca Bridge in Honduras. Honduras used to have lots of storms, and a lot of the bridges used to get swept away with the horrible storms they had. So they called all the 
the architects and the, the civil engineers together said, I want you to design a bridge that'll survive the worst storms. So they built this bridge, looks a bit like the Seven Bridge, doesn't it? And for years they built this bridge and finally they finished in 1995, the bridge was finished. And they thought, fantastic. Then 98, a humdinger of a storm hit Honduras. The worst storm they'd had for years. And guess what? The bridge survived. It survived the worst storm in the world. It was amazing. But for one thing. The storm was so bad, the, the route of the river was diverted by, by the, the storm. And look at this bridge now. The bridge survived, but the river moved. And the bridge has become irrelevant. It is standing there saying, what a great bridge I am. I can survive the greatest storm. But the river has moved. When I heard this story, I couldn't help think, I think this represents church. What a great structure we are. Look at us. Aren't we fantastic? And society has moved. Now, either the bridge moves or it becomes irrelevant. Or you need to build a new bridge. And we need to rebuild bridges into our communities. So Cornelius gets the call, come to Joppa. And because he'd had the vision, he realized God was saying, it's okay, you can go to a Roman soldier's house. So he travels, knocks at the door, and meets Cornelius. Now Peter, at this stage, has a choice. He can either say to Cornelius, I'm a Jew, I'm a Christian Jew, I'm not allowed into your house because you're a Gentile. The moment I step over this threshold, I become defiled. I become unclean. I'll get so much grief back in Jerusalem. If I step over this door, I am breaking with thousands of years of tradition. I mean, the Jews, they weren't even allowed to walk through Samaria. They had to travel around Samaria because they thought Samaria was so bad. The Jews brought in, no, you don't travel through it, you'll get unclean. You've got to walk around the country. And so Jews would detour around Samaria when they were traveling. And they were taught you're not allowed to go in to the house of a Gentile, a non-believer. You're not allowed. And Peter had a choice. And then he remembered the visions. It's okay. Don't call unclean what I've made clean. You see, God was working in Cornelius' house. His gifts to the poor, his prayers had been received by God. The bloke wasn't a Christian yet. But he'd got God's attention and love. And we tend to forget that God loves everyone. He just doesn't just love the church. God so loved the world, everyone. 
And God loves the people that, that don't know him yet. And believe it or not, I believe he's working in their lives, but they don't realize it yet. Cornelius knew something was happening. He, had, he got an angel visit. He said, something's happening here. Let, let's, get, let's get the Christians in. Let's get Simon Peter in. So what did Simon Peter do? He stepped into the house. And explained to them about Jesus. They were God-fearing. They were respected by the Jews, Cornelius, but he was a Gentile. And in the early church, there's a teaching going around that, yes, you can follow Jesus, but you must become a Jew first. You must get circumcised. And it caused a big argument in the church, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Peter. You'll read later on that Peter and, and Paul had a ramding of an argument over circumcision because Peter kept stepping back into his religious world and then back into the Gentile world. And he, and he struggled with it, but he, he knew that... And in the end, he said to Paul, you're right. They don't need to be circumcised. Just, just teach them faith. Just teach them to believe in Jesus. And I believe sometimes we want people to to conform and to believe before we allow them into the church. And God say, no, go out and meet them where they are and show them Jesus. And I tell you a story, and, and I'm still struggling with this one, okay? Two weeks ago, we went to my daughter's church in, um, in England, and we met on the door by the welcome team, lovely welcome, this lady. And as we went in, Trish stopped and said, Malk, think that's a man dressed as a woman. And your mind starts to do somersaults. So we went home, said to my daughter and her husband, can we ask a question? That woman at the door, was it a man? And they looked at us and smiled and said, yes. She, he is going through a transition to become a woman but a couple of months ago, she was taken along to Alpha, and she gave her life to Jesus. So what does the church do? Does the church hide him, her away? Or do they say, no, let's, let's, let's welcome her in. Let's support the decision that, that's going on. And there she was at the welcome door. And that blew my mind. I've got to be honest. I, I'm still trying to work out could you give us something else to do, like serving in the coffee shop behind the couch? You know, what I'm saying is this. I believe it's time for us to go and meet the community where they are, rather than stay on your bridge, which is irrelevant. I'll tell you one more story. Let's go to the next slide. The 94.7 cycle race in Johannesburg. Every year, there's a great big cycle race that happens in Johannesburg. We will pass of a church there. 28,000 cyclists cycle 94. It's the it's a equivalent of Radio 1 radio station, 94.7. And every year, they sponsor this cycle race. And they cycle 94.7 kilometers. And one day, Trish and I were in this coffee shop, which is, happens quite frequently with Trish and I. And we saw a notice on the board. And this notice was basically a letter of apology from the 94.7 organizers 
to all the businesses and churches on the route. Saying, listen, we apologize for the disruption, but some roads are going to be closed and it's going to make it difficult for some people to get to your place of business or to get to church. At one place, they even build a temporary stand over the road for people to walk over to get to the church. And they were apologizing for the disruption to the church. And Trish and I read this letter, and Trish again, the blood began to boil, raising thousands and thousands of pounds for orphanages and having to apologize to the church for disrupting them for one Sunday in the year. So we went to our elders and said, listen, I think God's asking us to get involved. And our leaders by then knew us well enough to trust us. I said, okay. So we rang up the 94.7 and said, hi, uh, we're from the Barn Church in Johannesburg. Yes. We want to talk to you about the 94.7 cycle race. Yes, we want to help. And you know in this silence on the phone, where you can see that somebody's trying to compute something they don't understand on, the, on your phone. I said, sorry, what did you say? He said, we actually want to help. Oh, what do you mean? He said, well, we, we want to close our church on the Sunday and bring everybody out on the road to support and cheer you guys on. How can we help? Disbelief on the phone. Can, can we come and have a meeting? I said, yeah, come along. So they came to our church, two women. Um, one of them tattooed all over. Said, this is the first time I've been in a church for 10 years. I hate churches. Well, that's a nice start. Welcome. And then I said, listen, we're sorry you get grief from the church. We think what you're doing is amazing. You're, you're, you're feeding orphanages. You're feeding children who are... Who are of no parents. We think you're doing a wonderful work. How can we help you? He says, oh, um, well, you can do whatever you want. I said, we have fan groups around, around the course. Why don't you take a, an area and just support it? I said, great. I said, go wherever you want. So we, we looked around near our church. We found a great big uphill, and we parked ourselves on top of the hill. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, worship team the worship team went out on a trailer, set up, ready to start at 6 in the morning. And the church all arrived. And at 6 o'clock, they, they start the race. At 10 past 6, the first cyclists, the professionals, came whizzing past. Didn't notice us at all. But as the morning went on, your casual cyclists started appearing. 27,500 of them panting up the hill, slowing down, and then they met us, cheering them on, giving them water. We had a, a place where anybody with a puncture could have their bikes fixed and, and carried on, and we cheered them. The band sang Christian songs, secular songs. Sweet Home Alabama was a favorite. They loved that. And we were there till one o'clock in the afternoon, cheering 27,500 cyclists through, who some waved at us, some looked at us at surprise, but during the morning, the, the radio DJ, he was like the biggest radio DJ in South Africa, he came along on his motorbike checking the course. And he stopped and said, hey, guys, what are you doing? So we explained to him. He says, what? Your church? You're here? Not in the building? He says, no, we, we've come to support you. What you're doing is amazing. Just thank you for, for looking after the orphans. And he said, guys, fantastic. Thank you. And, and off he, he drove. 
The next morning on his, on his radio station, half of the morning they were given all the reports back uh, of the cycle race. Then he said, oh, one thing I must say. There's a church called the Barn Church. And guys, you were out on the road yesterday. You closed your church for us. You were the vibiest place anywhere on the course. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Do you know people joined our church and they called us the 94.7 church for a while. People came because they saw what we had done or they'd heard about it. Said, oh, we want to find out why did you do that? And sometimes we lock church up into meetings. Instead of saying, guys, your job, as Micah said this morning, is to get out into the community. Is to go and find your local council. What's their job? It's to make Rogerson a better, peaceful, happier place. That's their responsibility. Isn't that what the church's responsibility is? Can't we go to the, to the council and say, how can we help you? What can we do to help you? We're not after souls. We just want to help. We want to support you in the work you do. How can we help you? The, the library, what, what are you doing? Hey, we can do that. We can, we can come in one day. We can volunteer to do something. When God gives you a door, go through it. Look around and see what you can do. This happened because we saw a poster and something stirred in us. And each one of us has got responsibility to represent Jesus where you are. Um, over Christmas, I was talking to my nephew and niece, and they go to CrossFit. Any of you go here? Good. I think it's the work of the devil. Fitness? What is this? But they go six hours a week. They go an hour every day. They're hooked on it. They say, it's amazing. But do you know what CrossFit call it? They call it their community. They call it their family. And they said, yeah, it's, it's, it's our family. And when they go there, and they're doing the fitness work, they've got people cheering them on. Say, come on, you can do it. Go on, Josh, come on, keep going, come on. Get your target. Church is often 20 years behind society. And I'm thinking, that's what you need to do to each other. Go on, go and do it. Come on, get out and do it. Yeah, you can do it. Then on Sunday, you come back and say, oh, boy, have I been abused this week. I've been insulted. I've had all this. I said, yeah, come on, dust yourself down, Michael, saying, now get back out. Get a cup of coffee in you, cheer you on, and get back out and do it. Each one of us has got the responsibility of, of representing Jesus to the people that you meet. And I believe God will give you doors to go through if you're brave enough to go through them. It doesn't mean you do it without being supported. When Jesus sent the disciples out ahead of him, he sent them out in twos. Not on their own, it's too dangerous. He sent them out in twos to the places he was going to go to. He sent them out in twos to the places that he was going to visit. In other words, go and prepare the way. Go and prepare for what I'm going to do. And I believe if we can get stuck into what God has called you, each one of you to do, God will visit. 
You see, God was working in Cornelius' house, but he wasn't a Christian yet. But God was seeing what was happening and saying, yeah, I like these people. I want these people. Call for Simon Peter. It doesn't mean that you have to do everything. You can make all the links. Says, let me introduce you to Mike. He's crazy, but he's my pastor, and I want you to meet him. We're all in this together. And we're meant to cheer each other on and, 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 and do the work of God together. To encourage one another. So if you can get out and support Phil and Barry tonight, get out there. I know it's inconvenient. I know Liverpool are playing. You want to watch them win. But, but go and support him. Cheer him on. T to see Jeremy here this morning, do you know what memories it brings back of this youth group? And I'm thinking, wow, what a privilege, what a joy. Last thing I want to tell you. Next slide. Follow your leader. I follow Mike on Facebook. And I'm thrilled, not because of the posts he put about Faith Church, good as that is, but he posts about his teaching kids rugby. And he put this up yesterday. And I'm more thrilled about that than anything. That Mike is prepared to go out on a cold, wet, damp, miserable January day and train young people to build relationships with them. He's not doing to say, right, come around here, guys, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Come around, I'm going to tell you how to beat England. He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it to help them with the vision they've got. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, but it's a good work. And God sees good works. Goodness is not locked up in Christianity. There are some wonderful people doing great works who are not Christians. And I think God sees them like he did Cornelius. And his heart is touched by people helping other people, helping the poor, helping the needy. Let me pray for you. Father, yours is the kingdom. And we pray every week, we, we use your prayer, Lord. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means, Lord, we're meant to be doing the things that you're doing in heaven. You're asking us to do them on earth today. Your will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. You want us to replicate what kingdom living is all about. What heavenly life is like. So give us the courage, Lord, to go through doors. Give us the courage, Lord, to, to serve. Give us the courage to say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. I can help. I can make a difference. And Father, we want everything we do to touch your heart, to be accepted, to have your anointing on it. But give us boldness, Lord. Give us, as the Welsh say, hoil in our bellies, passion. Jesus' name. Amen. One last thing I want to say. Yeah, come up, team. Scripture says that we go out as sheep among wolves. 
And you'll go to some places where they will reject you. Where they'll spit you out and say, ah, we don't want you. That's okay. We're told to go into a place, and if they welcome you, then stay with them and help them. If they don't, you just kick the dust off your feet and you go on to the next place. But do it with the support of a team around you. Don't be a lone ranger, but do it to say, Come, Mike, I'm, I'm going to go and help in this, serve in this area. Will you pray for me? It could be you go into the local pub and start talking to the people. The danger is you drink too much, get drunk. So you take somebody with you to stop you doing that. You protect yourselves. Because we do, we do go out as sheep among wolves. And there are temptations, there are risks everywhere. But that's where we need to know the body is looking after us. And we come back and we report back, say, well, this is happening, but I've got this temptation, how do I deal with it? You're open and honest. Let's not become an irrelevant bridge. Let's go to where society, and society is moving so quickly. It is changing. But let's go and meet them where they are, and let's make a difference. Amen? Amen.